Well, hey, Northside, it's great to welcome you. I would say to church, but thanks for welcoming us into your home. And we're really glad we have this time to be able to be together and encourage one another on in our lives as we follow Jesus. Uh, Such an opportunity. We never want to to miss that. And we're so glad that we can share this time together. Uh, I always, as Nathan had said, it's always tough to, to, uh, you're preaching to mostly an empty crowd. We got a few here and appreciate them being here, but uh, uh, from staff, but just to realize Uh, we're just coming right in there to your life. Uh, One of the things I always kind of go back to as we have adjusted to this type of style of of weekend ministry and and message and worship time together is uh, I I remember the days of when we would have a four o'clock, a six o'clock, a nine o'clock on Sunday and an 11 o'clock and do the whole Saturday, Sunday thing. And I really, I I really miss seeing everybody. I kind of really miss even those days of all those services because for me back in the day, four o'clock was what I'm trying to say. Six o'clock is what I meant to say. Nine o'clock is what I'm trying to wake up with, and 11 o'clock, I'm just hungry. Somebody feed me, you know? That, that whole uh, flow of the weekend, and it's a little bit different, but I pray that it's meaningful for you. Uh, one of the things we would always do would, uh, at our uh, 11 or 11.30 now, would, when we'd have that live thing, would we'd welcome people into the room, and that's what we do every weekend, is just welcome people in. And one of the things I would usually do is a little code to our daughter over in Romania and, and her two kids for uh, Abella and Isaiah would be, I would wink one time for each one of them. So when I would say, let's welcome one another, I would do this to know they're not left out. And people came up to me afterwards and said, you're developing a twitch for some reason, you know? So I, I, I've tried to think, okay, we're all, all through that era and we're in a brand new era. And this series that we're in is very significant because anytime a church comes together and opens up the book of Acts, we have to let God speak. It's kind of been called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And as we continue in that, we look at the message of the life of a fellow named Barnabas. And he's just briefly in Scripture a couple, three times, and then he kind of fades away. But trust me, his impact was incredible. And if you and I ever feel like our impact is really not very much because we don't seem to, oh, well, we're maybe not at the center of this or or doing something that people might recognize, please understand, God is using you if you're faithful and following him, and it may or may not get a lot of press or a lot of coverage. And Barnabas seems to just kind of fade out of the picture, but today we want to look at his message that he had. And understand that it might not have been a simple three-point type of a thing, but it was more of what he did and who he vouched for and who he stood by and the integrity of his heart and life. All of that weaving together with his message and so many other messages in the book of Acts all come together to make the church of the Lord this dangerous church, dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. Because Jesus said, upon this rock of me being the Messiah... I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, we're on the offense and we need to take this to the gates of hell and reach those people that are right there next to the gates who need to hear this message of love. Now, I love to go through a lot of things and I really, anytime I'll have a conversation with somebody, I always love to see kind of where they are are at and what they know. So today, I want to do a real brief moment And and in all honesty, it'll take four or five minutes. Now, always remember, when preachers count people, we round up. But when they ask us, how long did we talk, we round down. 
Okay, so it might be nine or ten, but I'm thinking it's going to be four or five. And I want to ask you just to follow along. If you're a Bible person where you just dive in and you got it right in front of you now, you can follow along and see. But here are the, the messages, because the messages of Acts are all these things we need to hear. And once we see the broad spectrum, we'll see the great part that Barnabas played in his life and in his ministry. We have so many messages in the world today. Uh, the, the message of the, the threat of, uh, of our health and our wealth and, and with all the political rhetoric that's, that's going on and, and the soul of the nation and the divisiveness and the justice issues and all those things we have to not only talk about but do something about. These are the messages in the book of Acts. If you're in chapter one, you, like Nathan has said a couple of weeks ago, it was to wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Jesus preached that sermon really good. In chapter 2, Peter starts to preach, and he says, you need to repent and present yourself to God in baptism, and you need to act upon this. You need to give your heart and your life over to God. And he preached a tremendous sermon. 3,000 people dove in literally that day. Chapter 3, Peter continues. And God heals this crippled man uh, at the temple, and, and uh, he's jumping all over the place, never walked before in his life, and all of a sudden, here comes a crowd, and Peter understands another opportunity for a message. And he preaches and lets him know it's not about this guy, it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. In chapter 4, they pull him in front of the council, and the council is, is telling them, you, you be quiet. Don't talk about this guy anymore. No more about Jesus. And he says, we can't be quiet about what we've seen and heard, even though you you realize we are ordinary and uneducated men. We've been with Jesus. That's what they told them. And he said, so don't expect us to be quiet because there is no, under name, no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Chapter five, a whole nother sermon. God preaches that one because a couple in the church sell some land and they lie about what the price was, give it trying to look important and, uh, uh, and boom, they, they, they're kaput. They, they keel over dead. God says, not in my house. Now, in children's ministry years ago, we used to do a song. It was fun at the offering time about Ananias and Sapphira. Very sad story, but we somehow turned it into a fun song. And it went, Ananias and Sapphira got together to conspire a plot to cheat the church and get ahead. They knew God's plan, but did not fear it. Tried to cheat the Holy Spirit. Peter prophesied, and they both dropped dead. It's it, just a fun song. I don't care who you are, you know. And you get little kids in there, and you're singing, and you're telling more of the story and, and how it's good to give back to God. God, that was the message. God interrupts the church and says, I'm preaching this one, not in my house. I'm not going to tolerate that. Chapter 6, the apostles preach. And they say, regardless of what oversight we've had when it comes to Grecian widows, we're going to make sure that we take care of that problem, but we have to commit ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And if there's anything you and I need to uh, re-enlist in, it's the ministry of the word of God. Knowing it, sharing it, telling it, discussing it, helping one another understand it, and praying for each other. Chapter 7, Stephen preaches, and it costs him his life, but he says history cannot repeat itself. And he confronts the Pharisees who are gnashing their teeth at him as he's, he's letting them know how they are resisting the Spirit of God and how they killed the prophets before. If you ever want to know a good history of Israel, Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 8, all of a sudden the believers scatter, and they go everywhere, and Philip begins to preach. He goes to Samaria and has a great revival. Then God says, no, nah, go to this desert road. And he hustles on over there, and he sees a guy in a chariot, and he's got some scrolls pulled out, and he's on the edge of town heading back home. So he runs, the Bible says to him. He runs to the chariot, and I imagine if Philip would have been like me, <laughs> 
he'd have been a little out of breath if he had had to run anywhere. And he goes up to him after he catches his breath. And the sermon that Philip preaches to this Ethiopian going back to his country, he looks and he sees he's got these big scrolls of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. And he simply says what we should say to anybody anytime. Does this make sense? Do you, you understand this? Does, does Jesus make sense to you? Does God? And the guy just simply says, how can I understand this unless somebody helps? And in Acts 8.35, one of the most beautiful messages, simply put, it says, and then Philip preached Jesus to him. And they're going along, and all of a sudden he says, hey, there's some water. Can I be baptized? Philip says, sure. See, all of that is a part of the message of Jesus. And when they're scattered, everybody starts to preach. In chapter 9, Jesus preaches to Saul, and he says, why are you persecuting me? You'll be able to see after three days, but after a glimpse of me, you're going to be blind for a while. In chapter 10, Peter has an LIB moment where, you know, that uh, LIB, what that kind of represents, MR ducks, MR not ducks, OSMR, CM wings, LIB, MR ducks. Maybe I would say I won't use it next service, but this is the only shot I've got, okay? That, that LIB, well, I'll be because he saw the Gentiles come to faith. And in chapter 10, Cornelius and his Italian family come into the family of God. Chapter 11, the world preaches and they say, we're going to call you Christians right here at Antioch because you don't belong here. We don't know where you belong, but you seem to belong to him. Belonging to Christ, yeah, that's what we'll call you. You're just a bunch of Christians. In chapter 12, King Herod Agrippa says, no, I'm going to preach this chapter. And he says, let the persecution begin. And he says, I'm going to take James out. James, Peter, James, and John, the three of the inner circle disciples close to Jesus. And he has James beheaded. And he throws Peter in jail. And he says, I'm only one and a half away from just, just killing this whole movement. But Peter gets out of jail. But make no mistake, Herod Agrippa has a touche moment. So what does the church do in, in chapter 13? What's the message there? And they begin to pray and they begin to fast and they say, God, will you tell us what to do? And the Spirit said, you send out Paul and Barnabas. It's time to get back out on the road. So 13 and 14, it's send them out and stay on the road. Another road trip of beginning and building churches, letting people hear the gospel. In chapter 15, they come back and now they got some opposition and they come and they complain to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who appears to be kind of the spokesperson for the church there in Jerusalem, the mothership. And they just, some of the Jewish believers say, wait a second, it's nice all these Gentiles are coming in, uh, but we, eh, we don't like the barbecue sandwiches. We don't like this. No kosher kitchen. We, they should become Jewish. And they become very legalistic. And they appeal to the early church leaders. And James has a beautiful sermon that he preaches. And he says, hmm, We'll take this into consideration, give you our response. And he says, here's how we came to the decision. Beautiful phrase. He said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, I know we're a long ways away, but say that with me if you would. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Every personal, every family, every church decision ought to be made like that. 
with a sense of peace of what God is saying. And then he says, you know what? Health reasons. Old Testament says don't eat any uh, uh, meat that still has blood left in it. It's been strangled. Not, not healthy. Uh, you know what? We've got a lot of pagan uh, temples around here and sex is involved in that and all sorts of immorality. So don't eat any meat that's been offered to, to those gods because people think, oh, gosh, that's terrible. I don't even want the cheap hamburger, you know, from there. Uh, he said, so stay away from that. He says, and stay, let's tell the Gentiles, stay away from immorality. Sexual immorality, any kind, not married, man, woman, husband, wife, that's, that's kind of the context. Anything else, let's stay away from that. So he says, that's, that's the only thing we're going to do. We're not going to make it hard. We're not going to make the Gentiles become Jewish to get to heaven because Jesus didn't say that. So after that, chapter 16, it begins after Paul and Barnabas have split. And Paul realizes, I'm going to have to mentor some people too. Chapter 17, he realizes going to Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens that some people responded, many people in Berea, because they had a lot of scrolls and a lot of Old Testament scriptures they wanted to know. And people who want to know and are hungry to know the truth about God and make sense about this, they listen to that message and they tell other people. In Athens, they're just a bunch of philosophers. So the Bible says only a few. And Paul began to realize This isn't about me. This is about God and who he wants to reach. And sometimes it'll be some. Other times it'll be many. Other times it will be few. Kind of like every one of us in ministry, whether it's children's ministry, student ministry, or or preaching and working with adults, we just hope that we get on base with getting this message to you. You know, it may be a home run. That might be nice. A double, just a single. Get on base. And I have many times prayed, Lord, let me get hit by a pitch. Just get me on base with this message somehow. Paul began to realize that. In chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila, a couple come along. They correct a guy named Apollos. And their message is, we got to get this right. This is too precious. In in chapter 19, everything comes to a head for Paul. And and the Jews are trying to kill him out there. They want to get rid of him. He's too strong of a voice. And it might be titled, Demons and Idols and Riots, Oh My, because they're ready to kill him. He appeals to Caesar just to stay alive. Because if they would have let him go because he was a Roman citizen and released him from prison, he'd have been dead in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. So he knows to appeal to the government so he can be used by God a little bit longer. Chapter 20. Chapter 20 is a tough one because it's his goodbye moment. And he says uh, his message is to believers to stay true, stay faithful. And then it has a moment he's on the beach, on on the shore, and he is about to sail away. He knows he's gonna die. It's just a matter of time. And he's saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus and the tight bond. And I want you to know there, there is and there should always be a tight bond with ministry staff, Preachers, teachers, leaders, and and elders and shepherds and all those together. Paul had that. I've been blessed through the years. Uh, This month, (laughs) I will have been in church ministry 44 years. No wonder I look so tired, okay? I've had the time of my life. I've loved every minute. I've loved some minutes more than others, but I have loved every one. But I can tell you the bond of leaders through the five different churches where I've been particularly even the first church up at Scottsburg. I I could go around the room and say, Bud Carter and Ron Murphy and Carl Rose, who actually is Mike Rose, our our guy here at Northside, his his uncle. 
And I'd look at Orville Nichols. I'd look at Jim Hall. I'd look at Bill Cranford. How in the world that long ago can I pull up those guys' names? Let me tell you why. Not only were almost seven years uh, uh, in the trenches arm in arm with them, shoulder to shoulder, but about a year after I be, had gone into ministry and became their, their youth and children's ministry then, those six guys got in, in an Impala, drove to Illinois, six hours, to be with me and my family at a funeral home for one hour on a Sunday. Turned around, came back, six hours, went to work the next day. There's a bonding that leadership ought to have because God is in the center of that. Now, you say, when are we going to get to Barnabas? Oh, remember, he has a short sermon, okay? we got to get to that. But you'll understand the small pivoting part of his life when you understand everything else. Because in 21 to 28, I would just call it, Paul says, I'll tell everybody who's going to listen. Whether they're chained next to me or whether the, the king pulls me in and says, I want to know some of your thoughts about this. And he talks to anybody and everybody. It's a lot of messages. But those are messages that I would hope in the body of Christ we'd get familiar with more all the time, particularly in this series on the book of Acts, so we can say, okay, I'm seeing it from 30,000 feet. Help me understand a little bit here that i got to focus on today. Now, understand this, please. Barnabas' message was brief. It was very brief. We're just going to look at three passages real quick. He was an early adopter. In other words, he got it, and he just said, you know what? I'm in. I'm just in. I don't care if anybody else is in. I get this, I'm in. And then Acts chapter 4, follow along, this, this scripture will appear on the screen. It, it talks about the first mention of Barnabas. His name wasn't even Barnabas, that was his nickname. It says, for instance, there was Joseph, one of the apostles, nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles, no strings attached. Hey, I want this over here, or someday I'd like this to be. No, 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 no. I got a little spare land, liquid. There's a big need around here in the churches. We're getting off. You're just coming off in chapter four. They had everything in common, and many people did this, but they decide to say, for instance, a guy named Joseph, that the apostles nicknamed Barnabas came and laid down what he had. How do people get nicknames? Why would you call a guy, well, I understand, if his name is Joseph, that's pretty common. And I've always got, anytime you mention Joseph in a sermon, well, are we talking Old Testament Joseph? You know, uh, Jacob's favorite son, or Joseph and Mary, who we're talking about. So they nicknamed him for whatever reason. But I've always found that nicknames are always either the essence or the opposite. Okay, you got a heavy set guy, what do you call him? Slim. <laughs> uh, you got a guy six foot five, I knew up in Scottsburg years ago, his name was Shorty. How does that come about? Well, some are the essence, like Mean Joe Green and the Pittsburgh Steelers and, and things that rhyme. How in the world did Barnabas get this? Well, it means son of encouragement, and that was the essence of who he was. I don't know if they called him Barney, but immediately I think of famous Barneys, and you got to think of Barney Fife. Andy, Andy, you know, you just see his face and you have to chuckle because you think of nip it in the bud, you know, you think of all the phrases that you've seen on the Andy Griffith show. Uh, another Barney that, uh, Barney Rubble and, and, you know, Fred Flintstone's best friend <laughs> had that funny laugh. You remember him, okay? Or, or maybe another kind of sitcom in the 70s, Barney Miller. The only thing I really remember about Barney Miller in that TV show was the baseline on the intro. 
Bum, ba-da-dum, ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-dum. Every kid playing the bass learned the Barney Miller theme song real quick. Just like every guitar player my age learned House of the Rising Sun, and in the 80s it was Smoke on the Water. That's it. That's, that's all they do. So you can look at all these different Barneys. How'd they get that? Well, Barney Fife was Bernard P. Fife, I think. So you don't know if it was Barnabas or Barnaby or Bernard, whatever it might be. Doesn't matter. All I know is there's one more Bar- Barney that we have to mention. And he's purple, and he's a dinosaur, and he sings, I love you, you love me. And every day I would see him after our kids were grown, I thanked God that our kids grew up on Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, and I didn't have to hear that song all day long. So it's all about the age of your kids, all right? Now, a crazy thing happened this last week. We've known it for a few months since we moved in to the house where we are. And Sula and I ran, uh, we walk around the backyard and we could tell, boy, we got moles. If you've ever had that, you see, ah, oh, there's kind of a, oh, we got to take care of that. And we've dropped the bombs and the, the worms and all that kind of stuff that you throw at them and, and had the people come in. And I wanted to put it on the screen, but I don't want to list the, the company that had made this assessment. But they literally texted her back today and said, it's official, your yard is the worst mole yard we have ever had to service and deal with, and we hope to help it get a little bit better. So we decided, like this whole nickname is the essence of somebody, like Barnabas was the son of encouragement, here's the guy we're going after. We just decided, lay aside all principle, and hopefully Bill Murray from Caddyshack will be available. So if you hear uh, the overture of 1812, you'll basically know uh, that, uh, uh, that, that he's in our backyard taking care of all that. Now, if you look in Acts chapter 9, you begin to understand that this Barnabas, the poster boy of encouragement, he decides he's going to make sure that he helps Saul, later to be called Paul, is encouraged to be a part of the fellowship after he becomes a believer. But it's really dangerous. Because everybody knows him. He was there when Stephen was killed. He dropped his cloak on the ground, signifying, go ahead and kill this guy now. He's dangerous. Matter of fact, there's probably some assumptive truth that we could guess. I'm sure Barnabas knew Stephen. And now all of a sudden, Barnabas becomes friends with the fella. The manager from the dugout that tapped his arm said, bring in the left-hander. The head of the mafia who said, have this guy whacked. The head Pharisee who says, we want Stephen to be killed on the spot. Barnabas' friend. And yet Barnabas comes alongside when Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. And here's what it says in verse 27. Then Barnabas brought him, Saul, to the apostles and told him how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus, how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He's vouching for this guy. And he also told him that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Nobody would come around Saul for good reason. I mean, this might be a Trojan horse kind of a moment. All of a sudden, he's got 20 other Pharisees in the background that you don't recognize, and they've blended in, and they're just going to wail on whoever they want to take out next. Was this a whole deceptive moment of trying to fool the church to go undercover? Not even the apostles 
Nobody would hang out with Saul except Barnabas. No wonder he gets a nickname because he was the most encouraging person that the church knew since Jesus had gone back to heaven. But that's not where his story ends. His story seems to come to a head in Acts 15. And, and as we mentioned a while ago, they've got things lined out with the, the, the people who are Jewish understanding we can't make the Gentiles become Jewish. Everything the Jerusalem council has spoken and, and things are, are really going pretty good. And they're ready to go back on the road, it seems like. Here's what happens in verse 36. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord, to see how the new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark, who was Barnabas's relative, had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus, went back home. Paul chose Silas. And as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. Then he traveled through uh, out Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. It seems like Barnabas is fading out. He's done what he was called to do. But now Paul is saying, I think I know what's best for us. And, and there was a terribly sharp disagreement, but it was about how to do ministry and who to do ministry with. And it really was all about how to show grace. And the irony of all that is, there would be no Paul were it not for Barnabas, welcoming him in. Thirteen letters in the New Testament are written by Paul. John Mark came under the wing of, of Barnabas. He mentored him. And next thing you know, John Mark, later to be known as Mark of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote the gospel. And Mark was the first one to turn in his homework. See, Barnabas had an impact that just didn't get a lot of press because he didn't need a fanfare. He wanted to be faithful and he wanted to be encouraging. Barnabas gets it. He knows when to get in the game. He knows when to get out of the way. And he never goes out of the way. He does exactly what God has called him to, to do behind, let's say, the shadows. So if we're going to say Barnabas gets it, we've got to have an acrostic. He gets it by being generous. He had this generous heart that is such a blessing. Every time we'll have a, an offering moment or a consciousness uh, within our announcements, we always thank the Northside family for being so generous so ministry can happen, so new ministries can begin, so we know that God's going to provide for what is next as he lets us know the direction to head. Barnabas had that generous heart financially, and he wanted to help. And Northside family, you are such a blessing to the kingdom, capital C church, but also to this congregation, lowercase c. Your faithfulness allows people to come into a saving relationship with Jesus. Barnabas got it. He was generous. Barnabas was encouraging. He, he went out of his way to do what would be encouraging for everybody, it seems like, every time. But let's let the T of getting it represent transparent. He was open. He was honest. He was vulnerable. He was open about the price. Ananias and Sapphira in the next chapter, they weren't open and honest about the price. 
that they were laying down at the apostles' feet. He was open and honest with, with uh, the other apostles saying, listen, I've, I've heard Saul preach. I, I, I've heard his story and I'm in with him, so I'm vouching for him. I'm partnering with him. We need him. We need to accept him and I'll be the first one to do that. He just simply was transparent enough and risky enough to say, and if you're going to reject him, you're going to have to reject me, I guess. That type of transparency, that type of loyalty but he was also transparent when he disagreed. And he didn't make it personal with Paul. He just did what God called him to do next. So maybe his three-point message might be this. Number one, let's give these folks some help when it comes to helping people in the church. It's a great first point in a sermon. Let's help. Maybe his second point was let's give this guy a chance. Saul, I know, I know. He's made many of our friends, uh, families, to, you know, fatherless and husbandless. But maybe God has truly done a work in his heart and life. Let's give him a chance. And his third point was, let's give this other guy, John Mark, <laughs> another chance. He bailed out on the, on the first mission trip he went on. I don't know. Maybe it was kind of like the Dominican. He got sick half the way through, you know. It takes a while to get adjusted to all that. Not sure, but... Barnabas knew we got to stay with him and bring him on and develop him. I, I, through the years, I look and I see, and I could name names, but as soon as I do, I'd leave several out. But to see kids who have been raised here at Northside, involved in ministry, some on staff and some in other areas, even beyond here, I, I can't begin to tell you I understand Barnabas' heart. I understand, and I, I long to have that type of generous, encouraging, and transparent heart that just says, honest no matter what, encouraging no matter what, always generous. You see, Barnabas was a talent scout. He wasn't a talent show. It was not about him. When we begin to understand that our role, particularly as ministry people on staff, is not to do ministry, not to do ministry, but to help you do that ministry and help you do that. I know it sounds like Oprah, you get a ministry, you get a ministry, but that, that is the whole thing. How can we equip the body of Christ, take the roadblocks out of the way so you can do what your gifting is, what your calling is, because where there is a gifting, there is a calling. And when you discover your gift, then develop your gift and dedicate your gift. They all just happen to start with the letter D. That's what we do. And Barnabas understood that. You see, he saw in others what only God saw. He could see that. And it wasn't an agenda that he had. I think someday you could be this, or uh, here's part of my uh, plan for your life. No, 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 no. He saw something deeper that God was doing. He wasn't called to go out on another evangelism trip with Paul. He was called to develop an author who would listen to the heart and spirit of God and would go out on mission trips later, John Mark did, but also would begin to write the Bible. <laughs> That's an opportunity to mentor somebody. Now the question is, do we get it? Do we in our life right now get it? as Barnabas got it. You can look in the Bible and, and say, who, who seems to get it and who doesn't? 
All the way back in Genesis, you look, and Abel, he got it. He understood God's worthy of my best. Cain didn't get it. He just brought some leftovers to God. Then he got angry. couldn't get over his anger. You look and you see that Noah got it. But in chapter 6 of Genesis, in verse 5, the Bible's commentary on the culture around him was that only were evil thoughts present in every person constantly. It was a saturation of evil. Abraham got it. Lot didn't. Abraham let Lot choose which land he wanted to go to. And, and he said, well, that fertile soil is really good next to the Twin Cities. Well, it wasn't like Champaign and Urbana or St. Paul and, and Minneapolis. Not, not nice Twin Cities. It was Sodom and Gomorrah, for crying out loud. But all he saw was dollar signs at fertile ground. And yeah, who cares about the culture? Moses got it. But Pharaoh didn't. I love what Tony Campolo says. Pharaoh might have had a title, but Moses had the testimony. He walked with God, and Pharaoh's heart was hard. Gideon in the Old Testament, he got it in the book of Judges. Samson, he didn't get that so much. He was always looking at the ladies. Gideon was about trust. Samson was about lust. I love that country song called Then What, which talks about how uh, when a buddy, uh, these guys are friends, but one of the guys is winking at too many waitresses and he's already married. And he just tells him the whole song is about encouraging a brother not to stumble in that direction. And it simply says on the chorus, then what? <laughs> what you going to do when the new wears off and the old shines through and it ain't really love and it ain't really lust, you ain't anybody anybody's going to trust. Then what? Where are you going to turn when you can't turn back for the bridges you've burned and fate can't wait to kick you in the butt? Then what? Oh, oh, then what? What will we do when we fade away like Samson? He didn't, he didn't get it. Gideon understood this is about trust. Samuel in the Old Testament got the humble heart of God. Saul, he didn't get it. Samuel's posture was, what do you think, God? Okay, I'll do it. Hey, what do you think again, God? Okay, I'll do it. Here's Saul. Hey, what do you guys think? Okay, well, let's try that. And I'll get back with him later. He did not listen to the voice of God. David got it. Solomon struggled with it. David says, all I want is your presence, O Lord. Solomon says, I need your wisdom. God says, it's a good prayer, but don't let it take you where you want it to go. And Solomon's life faded into the sunset with too many wives, and he's lighting too many candles to too many idols, not the one true God. The wise men got it, Herod didn't. The prodigal son in that story got it, came to his senses, came and experienced grace. The older son still had resentment in his heart in that story all the way to the end. The tax collector in the parable of him and the Pharisee got it. He just simply said, God, have mercy on me. I'm just a sinner. I don't know what to do. And the Pharisee says, I'm pretty, pretty much everything you would want to have in a person, God. Good Samaritan got it. The priest and the judge didn't. They walked on by. And the thief on the cross, one of them got it. Because he humbly said, Jesus, we deserve to die. You don't. So when you come into your glory, that kingdom that's not of this world that you talked about, when you get there, would you re remember me? And remember what Jesus said, today you'll be in paradise with me. He got it. The other guy didn't recognize Jesus. How can we get it?
one of the things that's neat here in the auditorium that I've always loved. And it took us a year or two to put these things in the right place, but we got two crosses here in the auditorium. And one of them is on the audience's left, right above the baptistry. And it's just a small cross, but it's a reminder of this is Jesus's cross, all right? This is his. This reminds us of the one he died on. And right there in the baptistry pool, we just remember that his grace is amazing, but never think that it's something we do to accomplish or to impress God. It's we just simply surrender our heart and our life to him because of what he did for us. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness. Sometimes people wonder why Jesus came to die. Why does that have to do with anything? Was that just a nice sympathetic gesture? No. Somebody had to die. Because there is no forgiveness of your guilt and mine, your sin and mine, without the shedding of blood, without sacrifice, Adam and Eve didn't get out of the garden. They didn't move from fig leaves to animal clothes without the shedding of the blood of that first animal. That's what he did for us. That's this message that Barnabas got and all the people in Acts began to realize there's no forgiveness without him. Now, there's another cross. It's over on the other side of the auditorium on the audience's right. And it's a big one, and it's kind of bulky, and it's not standing up straight. It's on its side. And sometimes we've referred to that as the, uh, uh, the contrast of Jesus' cross there in the baptistry, what he did for us. But yet our cross that we're supposed to take up and carry. See, Jesus in his teaching in Matthew 16 simply said, he said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. You you can't do one of those three things. If you don't give up your own way, you'll never get under the cross. If you never get under the cross, you'll never really follow him. It's that in that order. Give up your own way. Get under that cross and follow him. So if we had to condense it down today, if perhaps Barnabas could say, yeah, be generous, yeah, be encouraging, yeah, be transparent, get it. What does it take us to get it? I want to suggest these simple things. Number one, you and I need to get under the cross. We can't just let other people carry it. Can't let just Jesus be the only one who carried it. Can't let some other church leaders and other people here or there. You have a cross. You have. It's more than a burden. It's a calling. It's an opportunity where you carry the cross with you. The message of the cross goes with you all the time. And if you and I get under the cross properly and help each other get under the message of Jesus, under the cross, then you and I will begin to get over ourselves. I'm the biggest threat to my spiritual growth. It's me. It will always be me. Barnabas said, it's not about me. Here's some land. Here's some money. 
Barnabas said, it's not about my safety. I'm going to vouch for, for Saul here. You know, I think, he, I think God's going to use him. And then he painfully said goodbye to a friend and didn't go out on the road because he said, it's not about me and top billing. I'll do what I think God's calling me. He got over himself. May God help us do that together in a world that how can you get over yourself if you can't get under the cross? That's the only way out of ourself. And if there's a message that needs to be heard worldwide, always has been needed to be heard and always will need to be, it is the message of the cross is the only hope of forgiveness that we have. Because it was the Son of God who left heaven and came and died for us. When we get under the cross and we begin to get over ourselves, with God's help, with the Spirit's help, with the Word of God and the people of God's help together, then we get on with our mission. And we do what God has called us to do. I love the passage in Hebrews 12, the first three verses. It simply says, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside everything that tangles us up and the sin that so much inhibits us from doing what we're called to do. And let's run the race that's marked out for us, for you, for me. Yours is different from mine. Let's run that race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinful men so that you might not lose heart. Northside family and friends and anybody who's listening, God does not want us to lose heart but he wants to hold on to the messages in the book of Acts and anything that his spirit, his word, and his people will call us together to do. May we have that heart and may you be blessed the rest of today. Love you guys. See you soon.